Welcome to the CanMed Coffee Talk podcast, where we talk with the leading minds in cannabis science, medicine, cultivation, and safety testing. I am your host, Ben Amaralt. I'm the marketing manager at Medicinal Genomics and proud member of the team that puts on the CanMed conference every year. All right, let's address the elephant in the room. If you've signed up for email alerts, then you should have received an email yesterday with an important update for CanMed 2020. If you have not signed up for email alerts, then please go to canmedevents.com slash coffee talk and do so now. The news is that our team has made the difficult decision to postpone this year's event to the spring of next year. CanMed 2021 will take place April 12th through 14th at the Pasadena Convention Center in Pasadena, California. If you're a faithful listener of the podcast, you have heard me say that we were closely monitoring the COVID-19 situation in California and working with the Pasadena Convention Center and local leaders to make sure we can provide a safe environment for our staff and attendees. Our team felt moving the event to April 2021 would be the best way for us to provide a safe environment for everyone. We are offering a 100% refund to current ticket holders should they have a conflict with the new dates. Go to canmedevents.com COVID-19 for more information. The good news is the CanMed Coffee Talk podcast will continue with new episodes every other Wednesday. We look forward to continuing the CanMed conversation through this medium, as well as on social media and on our website. We will be announcing our safety keynote presenter, an expanded phase two schedule and new speakers, as well as multiple panel discussions throughout the rest of this year and into 2021. So please sign up for email alerts if you haven't already. That link again is kmedevents.com slash COVID-19. And also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Just search for CanMed Events. Now, with that out of the way, let me tell you about today's guest, Keith Allen. Keith is the Director of Bioinformatics at Front Range Biosciences, where he is tasked with exploring the cannabis genome to find genetic markers that can be selected in breeding projects. His current focus is on cannabinoid and terpene production. But as we discuss in our conversation, there are a number of different traits cannabis and hemp breeders will want to select for in the future including yield, drought resistance, pathogen resistance, flowering time, hardiness for the outdoor environment, and more. The opportunity for improving the cannabis and hemp plant is only restricted by our understanding of the genome, which Keith readily admits is still in its infancy. Keith will be presenting on gene families and gene networks underlying oil production in cannabis trichomes at CanMed 2021 this spring. So please do consider picking up your ticket for the event now. Before we get to my conversation with Keith, I want to thank this episode's sponsor, the Growers Network. Growers Network is committed to providing the highest quality cannabis content, education, and resources. Be sure to check out their CannaCrib series, your behind the scenes look at some of the most sophisticated technologically advanced grows in the world. Visit them at youtube.com slash growers network. And finally, this episode of the CanMed Coffee Talk podcast is fueled by the Hemp and Coffee Exchange. 
Hemp coffee is a healthy, delicious, natural product rich in trace minerals and nutrients, providing sustained energy without the crash of regular coffee. For more information, check out hempcoffeeexchange.com and use the promo code DRINKHEMP to get 10% off your purchase. Okay, without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Keith Allen from Front Range Biosciences. Afternoon, Keith. Thanks for thanks for joining us today. Good afternoon, no problem. Excellent, um, and thank you so much for agreeing to be a part of CanMed 2020. I know the team here at Medicinal Genomics has been an admirer of your work for for quite a few years. So we're really excited to have you presenting this year. Yeah, I'm excited to be a part of it. This uh, has been on my radar for a while. So. Now, have you ever have you ever attended CanMed before? Would this be your first? This will be my first. Excellent, excellent. And we already have you secured and a speaking slot. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, what you're intending to present to everyone. So what I'm going to be talking about started out as being about gene networks underlying um, oil profile um, and cannabis trichomes. Um, and it turns out I got a little bit distracted on the way to getting there. Um, and so what I'm going to talk about is really the gene families. So before I could get to networks of genes, I need to understand what the genes are. And I ran into some kind of a lot more complexity and a lot more interesting detail in terms of what's going on under the hood in terms of the way trichomes are organizing the work that they're doing, creating all of these compounds that, you know, make the, make the plant so, uh, so interesting. So when you say you were originally going to talk about gene networks and now you're talking about gene families, what's the difference? So gene networks, you're talking about the way genes interact with each other, either in a regulatory system, you've got, you know, uh, genes that are responsible transcription factors, for example, that are responsible for turning on a particular set of genes, or you've got um, other genes that, that regulate what's going on in different ways, either by turning something up or destroying it or whatever. So that's one kind of gene network. The other kind of gene network is um, a biosynthetic network. Cannabinoids are pretty big molecules and the way cells handling making a molecule like that is by assembling it from smaller parts, very standard parts that it just makes a part of what we call core metabolism. And so there's a, there's a sequence, there's a pathway of genes that's involved in taking these very standard plugged together parts and building very, very specific um, large molecules like, like the cannabinoids. It's almost like an assembly line. It is a bit like an, uh, like an assembly line. Only this one, this one, every step is robotic, but there seems to be about five different robots that could be working each step. And we don't know that all the robots are the same or have the same priorities. So. Okay, so that's gene network. So what's a gene family? 
So a gene family, you take a particular kind, well, so here's a great example. The cannabinoid synthases are members of a large and, and very evolutionarily ancient gene family called the berberine bridge enzymes. There, we call them a family because there's, it's clear that there was way back in the deep past before the fungi split off from the plants, there was an enzyme and all of these enzymes, and they've diversified now to do a lot of different things, but they're all related in, in terms of their history, their lineage back to this original, uh, this original enzyme. So in cannabis, the berberine bridge family contains on the order of about 20 genes that we would recognize as cannabinoid synthases or you know, very, very likely to be cannabinoid synthases. And then there's a bunch more of these enzymes, some of which are pretty well expressed in trichomes that we don't know what they do. All we know is that it's probably a fairly, you know, a, a molecule that's in the range of the same size um, as, as, as a cannabinoid. So that would be an example of a gene family. Hmm. Fascinating. And one of the things I hear so much in, in talking to Kevin here at Medicinal Genomics and other folks who are kind of in this, in this space is we don't know. How much, how much do we know about the cannabis genome? <laughs> <clears throat> Not very much. Every time, <laughs> every time, you know, I peel back a layer of the onion, it's like, you know, I mean, it's, it's a little bit like one of those, those Russian doll things, except instead of taking it off and there's a smaller doll inside, you take it off and there's 50 smaller dolls and they're all a little bit different from each other. So everything about this genome is unlike other genomes I've worked with. I've slowed down a little bit. I'm thinking about the maize genome. It's a, a, maybe, maybe close to the same level of crazy, but basically, this has been a very, an intensely neglected crop for a very long time. So you compare what we know about the cannabis genome to what we know about, you know, tomato, corn, soybean, you know, uh, for Pete's sake, sweet potato, um, where there's, you know, entire academic careers have been sunk into studying, you know, these other crops and you come over to cannabis and you really, really starting with, you know, stone knives and bear claws in terms of the amount that we know. We do have various genomes that are finished to various rates of quality. We do have an initial run at, um, at annotating these genomes, which is basically just going through and saying, here's a gene, here's a repeat element. Um, and whatnot. Um, and we're just at the beginning of starting to get a sense for how much the genome varies from plant to plant, from cultivar to cultivar within cannabis. Um, and, and, and this is really my focus, getting into specific gene families like, you know, the, um, the family of genes that um, create the early precursors um, in the pathway to the, to the cannabinoids or the terpene synthesis, uh, for example. How much variation do we see in these from cultivar to cultivar in terms of 
just whole blocks of these genes being missing, and we're seeing that, um, you know, new ones that we haven't seen, you know, showing up as we, as we, as we sequence new cultivars, um, and also changes within the genes themselves. You know, I can reliably say, you know, this is the, you know, the THC synthase or, or whatever, but every plant I look at, the gene is just a little bit different. Um, so the, the amount of variation in this genome, particularly within the parts of the genome that are relevant to the kind of breeding we want to do, um, I, the amount of variation is amazing. Uh, that much we know right now. So on the one hand, from the standpoint of trying to study this genome, um, it's frustrating because it's, I, you know, I, I can't just write a simple document that says the cannabis genome is this. Um, um, on the other hand, it's really exciting because every time you turn around, there's, there's something new. And probably most importantly, from a breeding standpoint, breeding is about making, you're mixing up, you have, you have this line and this line, and this one has these characteristics you like, and this one has th these other characteristics you like. You wanna create a stable hybrid between them that has all the things that you want. So it's about making combinations of different genetic elements. So if you take a step back and look at this variation rate thing, it means the number of potential combinations, or another way to look at that is the number of possible breeding targets um, that we can we can get to with this with this plant is incredible. If you compare that to something like soybean, where the amount of genetic variation within you know the breeding um, stock that we we have available to us, it's extremely limited. Um, it, what you can do with that genome, because it's just very little, it's a very, what we call a bottlenecked uh, genetic population. Um, cannabis is absolutely the opposite um, extreme. And let's see, to actually answer your question, we are just at the beginning of understanding how much variation happens. Oh, that's fascinating. So, and so how much of that genetic variation in cannabis is just because it has been sort of on the fringes and hasn't had as much intense study as say a soybean or is it is it something that was always part of the plant or is it kind of due to circumstance so um that's kind of really not surprisingly it's kind of a complex question um one of the things um, so if you look at corn, for example, there's an ancestral species called um, Tiacente, um, and Tiacente actually still exists. You can grow this stuff. You wouldn't be able to, there's a way to eat it that has to do with like soaking it in lye and stuff like that. Uh, you know, but there was a set of like a half a dozen muta mutations that happened in Tiacente that turned it into something kind of looked like you know, modern field corn. Um, and so then we've been breeding on that all these years and you drive across Iowa and boy, I'm here to tell you modern, what we're growing in Iowa right now doesn't look anything like what, what you know, the Inca and Maya civilizations um, discovered. Yeah, what is that on the range of a thousand years um, um, ago? So 
that's an example where we've got the product of you know a millennium of selection and and now targeted um, breeding and we've got the wild relative in cannabis it seems like all we have is you know we don't have really really good what you would call land races or 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 wild relatives that everybody agrees yeah this is what it looked like before human selection everything i mean we have been doing selection in this in this uh, species really since the egyptians you know so it's a, a very very large number of um, of generations uh, plant generations have taken place while we've been selecting on this so we've got kind of this crazy mismatch of you know we've been selecting on this genome and and you know we 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 end up with something that is basically kind of a ways from 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 uh, you know what the natural genome would have looked like the other thing that's going on is there's been a lot of you know it wasn't random in terms of what you know individual breeders were doing but if you, you kind of like back up and look at the whole effect it's essentially kind of like random all of this mixing of you know southeast asian strains and you know it's strains found found from various places around the world to create new new varieties so we have that aspect of it as well is that there's basically everything you pick up right now is a hybrid meaning you know it's this is a diploid um, organism means it's got two copies of the chromosome and those two copies are very dissimilar um, to each other so if you I try to you know like breed this thing you know in my f1 population all of the seeds are going to be different um, so that's another aspect where we're very far behind in other species where you know I mean corn we uh, i don't know how long missouri 17 you know it, 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 these these old inbreds that have been reliable and understood and studied for 50 years and what kind of ways from that in cannabis right but i would think the potential to to breed a new and interesting strain of corn that's got to be pretty hard to do correct it it is to get to um uh to get to something that's really fundamentally different i mean what what modern breeding in corn is doing so it's it's moving to very much more sophisticated mathematical models for looking at the inner uh, at, at the relationship between observable genetic markers and output traits um but basically we're on this this part of the curve right now where uh, for corn we're increasing yield by about one and a half percent a year wow you know it still looks like the same plant but one and a half percent more than you got last year and that's been a very reliable um, trend at about that rate since about 1950 or so we don't know we're going to hit there's got to be a theoretical maximum um, someplace but cannabis will be very different um from that because we're really we're just so early in breeding we don't know you know there could be 
we could flail around and and fail to find you know much that's particularly useful i, I don't think that's going to be the outcome on, on on the other hand at the other extreme we could end up really hitting pay dirt on some new combinations that we haven't you know we we haven't known to try yet um so it's maize breeding is in many ways boring and reliable it's you know general motors is just kind of plugging along um cannabis breeding is going to be a lot more exciting in terms of what are the kinds of things that, that that we get out of it i guess the other thing to say there is that in maize um there's there's two main traits that that all of the big breeding companies are, fa are, are are focused on right now one is yield period and the second is drought tolerance or yield under under, under drought um nitrogen use efficiency or uptake efficiency is is another one that's for further down on the list you move over to cannabis and you know yield is going to be really important um but it's a it's a very complicated trait um to to breed with um drought tolerance is going to be important but i think that in the short term the kinds of things we're going to be looking at is creating stable reliable lines that give you a very specific oil profile under a given growth regime that's what the market is the most looking for um, right now the end user um, um, market and that's also going to be what i th i think we're going to be best positioned to be able to 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 breed for um, in, in in the short term so you're saying a, a consistent cannabinoid terpene profile um, from generation to generation that's sort of the first hill to to tackle yeah that's that's the first one that we're going to be able to go after now if you talk to growers i mean there's a lot of growers out there who say man i've got i got this one variety and i can sell every gram of this stuff that i can grow and i can sell it at a big premium but i can't afford to grow it because the yield the overall yield is so low you know what can be done um about this and there will be things to do there but anytime you you know so overall yield we don't even know how many genes are involved in that and so it's it's much more complicated to design a breeding program that you know and it may be the you know it's probably going to end up modeled very closely on on what's currently be done been done in maize um, and it'll just be gradual incremental increases in yield um, year by year yeah i mean and that's fascinating when you said that you know corn yield is increasing by one percent a year and has been since 1950 so yeah i can only imagine you know 70 years from now what cannabis is going to look like yeah yes yeah. it's fascinating so 
In terms of cannabinoids and terpenes, I got to imagine that's intensely complicated as well, just because, I mean, modern testing labs can't even test for all the terpenes that the, the plant is creating. Yeah. So, so where do you start there? Um, so the, the terpenes are very difficult. Um, for a number of reasons, you know, as, as a breeding target, as a, you know, anyway, you want to, want to go at it. Um, one of the big challenges with the terpenes is they're volatile. I mm -hmm. mean, they just, they just, you know, evaporate. And, you know, if, if, if you take your, you know, you, you got a whole bunch of fresh bud and your curing protocol is to put it in basically a, a low temperature oven for a day or two and just drive all the water out it's going to be nice and dry and you're going to lose almost all and you know of your terpenes out of there if you so there's all of these variable variables before your sample even gets to the extraction step in your testing lab um, that impact you know at the terpenes they all boil at different at, at, at different points, you know, the monoterpenes are boiling in the like 150 degrees Celsius range or the, the sesquiterpenes are larger and you're more like 225 or so, but they all would, but what that means is different molecules are being depleted out of your sample at different rates. So, you know, if you're looking at the ratio between the ratio of myrcene to caryophylline, for example, it's going to change depending on how you cure the plant and how old um, the, the the sample is. So it's kind of a nightmare scenario for a breeding program where you would need to be going in and periodically checking: Do I have exactly the terping, you know, profile that I want? Um, it's just it's inherently difficult just because you know the, uh, this this kind of experimental variability is is, is built, built in the other aspect of this is that um, this is a particular area of chromatography where you've got very complicated mixes people are dealing with different matrices that you know they have to you know do do the extraction from um, and it's there's a lot of stuff that that makes it difficult to do um, to do these measurements really well. Um, you know, steep hills seem to do a particularly good job of it, but um, you know, your mileage is going to vary because this stuff is not easy, and we haven't standardized to like a global set of best practices um, that everybody would adhere to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when I when I speak with with folks in the lab testing side, which is one of the focus areas of CanMed, that's one of the things they come back to all the time is the need yeah. for a standard to sort yeah. of get consistent results from lab to lab. So um, hopefully, hopefully we'll see that soon. Yeah. Um, one of the things you sort of touched on, and it's not an exact correlation, but I did want to bring up to you this whole idea of nature versus nurture as well, mm -hmm. where, you know, the genes are only going to do so much. It, it, a lot's going to depend on the environment you place it in, the type of lights that you're providing. 
So I'm wondering if you could comment a bit on that. And is there sort of, is there variation even be, between strains where some are more sensitive to sort of those changes or is it universal? A little bit of all of those. Um, <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah. So for, for a given genetic background, you, you have, you, you grow up this stuff and, you know, either it's completely genetically pure, well, we don't have that, so, you know, you do cuttings. Um, we already know, you know, so you do, you grow them indoors and outdoors, you grow them under, you know, high pressure sodium or, you know, you know, LED light, um, you grow them outdoors in five different fields, or you walk a field outdoors and just look at, the, if you've got a lot of variation in the field, and most of the time when I'm out in a field, it's rare to find a field that is really 100% homogeneous in terms of soil type, the amount of water that, uh, that the plants have available to them, and um, you know, the, the various things that, you know, shading from wind, for example. Um, so a given genetic background is gonna give you basically like a set of performance characteristics. It does this under these lights and this under these other lights and this range of things when grown outdoors. The one thing you know for sure is it's gonna be really different outdoors than it is in the greenhouse. But to come back to that last part of your question, that's something that's gonna vary from strain to strain. Some strains, I don't, I don't know, it's, it's, some strains are gonna be really good indoors and they're just going to be crap outdoors or the opposite you can have other strains that are really a lot less sensitive to environmental changes um, than others and it's just it all comes down basically to a complex interplay of the set of gene networks working um, in in each particular in each particular plant one of the you know, you know, if from a data analysis perspective, what you would most like to have rather than say, you know, here's the plant and it performs like this, what you would have is a complete breakdown. Here it is in five different growth environments and a half a dozen um, replications of each one. So you know within each growth environment how much does it vary and how much does it vary between growth environments. Um, the cost of doing something like that starts to get fabulous very, very quickly. So you have to work with less data than that. Yeah. And now is that something that could eventually be sort of bred into the plant is to kind of have, I guess, more robustness so they're not so sensitive to those variations like you mentioned out in the field? Yeah. 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 Once, but targeted breeding like that you need to know basically what are the exact genes or at least what are the you know chunks of the genome sometimes you can do a mapping and it just says well it's this part of you know chromosome eight is is what's giving us this behavior but you need to have you need to know something like that and then once you have that you can devise a molecular marker and you can follow it um, through your crosses and breed for, you know, in this case, you know, robustness to environmental change. Um, 
So there's a prior step first. Gotcha. And one of the things you mentioned was, you know, that a lot of commercial commercial cultivation right now is done with cuttings. And I imagine the goal is to eventually get to stabilizing seeds for for propagation. So how how far away do you think we are from that? So there are there are some lines on the hemp side um, that are relatively homogeneous. Um, homozygous is a, is the exact term. Um, but you know, for if we do it the traditional um, by the traditional method, um, which is uh, years of what's called back crossing, targeted um, um, back crossing, where you're you're monitoring. Um, you know, am I fixing, meaning making this homogeneous in the, in, in the genome? Am I fixing all the positive um, gene variants, the alleles? Um, and not, what you want to avoid is fixing negative um, alleles, which is, you know, because what you're creating is an inbred line. And the danger with inbreds is you can be you fix deleterious genes in there. So the magic of, of making good inbreds is being able to follow, knowing enough about the genome that you can breed something that, that's, that, that, that's inbred um, and doesn't have you know, serious deleterious um, um, alleles in there. So the traditional, the old fashioned way to do that takes years, um, you know, I mean, Depending on who you talk to, um, you're going to get different numbers on on how long it would take. But if you were just to do, say, you know, a half dozen back crosses, you're going to be a fair amount of the way there. You could do that probably in you know two or three years. Um, but to get to really good homogeneity is going to take longer than that. Now. On the other hand, there is a trick um, called double haploids, where you start with a haploid cell, like for example, a pollen um, uh, grain, and you trick it. There's a chemical trick that you can do and regenerate a diploid plant um, from it. That is now what you've done is you, you, you forced it to go through a doubling without creating two cells and bang, now you've suddenly got um, a line that is exactly homozygous at every, at every position. Um, that's called double haploid technology and it doesn't exist yet in cannabis. Um, it, we don't technically know if it's possible in cannabis um, yet. Uh, at Syngenta, we, got it going in maize um, and it was um, a nuisance, but we had it running. Then we, we tried and we had very good experts working on it. We tried to get it going in tomato and just failed abjectly. We ended up licensing from another company in the Netherlands that had, had gotten it working. So cannabis may be, you know, it's, it's gonna be really hard to get it working. It could be really easy or it could be impossible. But with double haploids, that would revolutionize a lot of things um, in the industry very quickly. 
So you're actually taking pollen and having it essentially breed with itself? Basically. It's fascinating. So I would be remiss if I didn't ask you um, about your position at Front Range Biosciences. Um, what's your role there? What are, the, what are the things that you're working on? So um, I am the, the director of bioinformatics. Uh, you know, we're a little startup, so that's a, that's a, a fancy term for, for basically, I'm, you know, the, uh, doing the main amount of the, the bioinformatics work, which is mainly focused on gene discovery, um, you know, developing the catalog of the genes that, um, that we'll care about for, um, uh, for our breeding uh, purposes. And so what is your focus currently? So I've been focused uh, on um, the terpene family. And right now I'm working on um, the, the cannabinoid uh, family, both the, the, what we call the terminal synthases that make the individual um, um, cannabinoids um, and the upstream um, parts of the, of, the, of the pathway. There's a number of other things that, you know, along the way, you know, we're, we're going to get to, um, you know, disease resistance obviously is one that, uh, you know, there's a critical need for um, in cannabis. But, um, you know, basically, I mean, right now, I'm really focused on the cannabinoid path. Excellent. And any any cannabinoids in, in particular? Or is it sort of a combination of the, the, the tried and true THC, CBD, or are there sort of other lesser cannabinoids that you're interested in? Yeah, we're mostly interested in the lesser cannabinoids in the, uh, so, so front range is, is focused on uh, CBD dominant um, um, legally hemp varieties. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that everybody in the field is, is very concerned with is not having um, your plants go hot at that 0.3% um, THC. Um, so understanding what are the genes that are involved in creating this extraneous um, THC. A lot of times you're seeing this in, uh, in varieties where the THC synthase gene looks like it should be stone dead. So there are other sources of THC uh, so understanding, uh, understanding those. Um, but then also, there's a lot of interest in the other um, cannabinoids and, and for very good reason. I mean, if, if you only know one thing about pharmaceutical chemistry, it's that if you've got a family of related molecules and you know that two or three of them are really super interesting, you better go look at the rest of them. Um, so Cannabichromine is one of the more easy to find, but, but also CBG um, um, uh, strains, um, the Varin, Cannabivarin uh, uh, and um, THCV. Um, and there's a number of these, you know, lesser cannabinoids that, you know, we're, we're looking for plants that make reasonable amounts of them, but there's a lot of there's a lot of perfectly good-looking synthase genes that are actually expressed in, you know, in flowers, not at the same rate um, as as the, you know, as the CBD and THC synthases. But you know, these are real healthy genes, and we'd like to know, you know, 
what do these things do? Excellent. So you're very much focused on creating, you know, high yield resinous buds for terpene and cannabinoid production. Any interest in sort of uh, looking into hemp as a uh, as a textile or, or for other uses beyond sort of the pharmaceutical or nutraceutical uh, aspects? Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, there's so the um, there's various sides to like you know the, the economic argument in terms of you know what is it profitable um, for the you know for the farmer versus other things that they could, they could be doing um, and uh, you know so that that kind of drives like where are the most important market segments for us to be looking at but you know hemp as a fiber um, you know, it's, it, it, it's got, you know, this long list of, of really substantial advantages. And if nothing else, creating varieties where you get, say, both things going on at the same time, you've got you know, nice. very good oil production and very good um, fiber production. You know, that's something that, 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 that we've talked about. Um, I think it's maybe more likely that it's going to continue to be two very different um, kinds of varieties. But, you know, the short answer to your question is, yeah, that's, you know, that's obviously another one that's, that's, you know, the, the other is, is uh, use of the, as the, as, of the seeds as a protein source. Um, Absolutely. You know, so. Well, that's, that's very fascinating stuff, Keith. Um, where can people learn more? Where can people learn more about um, about your work and uh, about Front Range Biosciences? Well, that's well. Let's see. You can go to the uh, Front Range Biosciences website um, uh, for my terpene work. Um, I've got a paper out uh, in in Plus One. Um, you know, uh, you can go to CanMed. I I understand. I'll be giving a talk. Uh, <laughs> yes, please. Yeah. And uh, and I'm I'm starting to kind of shape out the profiles of uh, of another paper that will be focused on uh, the cannabinoid pathway. Excellent. When can we when can we expect to see that? Oh, I'm not going to make any kind of guess on that. But <laughs> within the year, I should. All right. Excellent. We'll be sure to uh, share that with everyone. And uh, hey, hopefully, it'll be there in time for CanMed. We can get a we can get a glimpse into it. So thanks again, Keith, for taking the time to talk to us today. No and uh, we'll see you in Pasadena this fall. See you later. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Keith Allen. Check out the links in the show description to learn more about the topics we discussed. And please also check out the Front Range Biosciences website. Our next episode will drop August 5th. In the meantime, please go to canmedevents.com slash coffee talk and sign up for email updates. That will enter you into a drawing to win two tickets to our CanMed 2021 VIP dinner and also keep you up to date with all things CanMed 2021. If social media is your thing, 
You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Just search for Kim at Events. And lastly, if you are listening via a podcast app, go ahead and hit the subscribe button so that new episodes automatically download to your device. And please also leave us a five-star review. All right, that's it from us. Stay safe, stay healthy, and be sure to come back for the next episode of CanMed Coffee Talk.